Hey everybody, today we have retirement news for the week ending uh, Friday, September 17th, 2021. So first up, more non-information or misinformation coming in from the New York Times relating to Bitcoin. So this week, a dude on the Times editorial board decided to throw in his two ignorant cents on the evil of Bitcoin. And predictably, he made it abundantly clear that A, he doesn't understand Bitcoin, and B, he doesn't like the way Bitcoin makes him feel. So you shouldn't like Bitcoin either. The piece uh, by Socialist Editorial Board member Binyamin Applebaum was titled, Bitcoin Cosplay is Getting Real. And remember last week, uh, the Times offered up their ham-fisted attempt to make you believe the environmental catastrophe caused by Bitcoin was accelerating global warming. So we're starting to see a pattern here. Angry socialists want you to fear Bitcoin. So check this out. So starting with the third paragraph, because if I share the first two, uh, you're going to be dumber just for hearing his imbecilic preamble. Um, but here we go. Bitcoin for the uninitiated is a technology that purports to solve a host of problems with old school national currencies. It is designed to safeguard wealth against the depredations of inflation, public authorities, and financial intermediaries. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Some products become popular because they're useful. Bitcoin is popular despite being mostly useless. Its success rests on the simple fact that the value of Bitcoin has increased dramatically since its introduction in 2009, making some people rich and inspiring others to hope they can ride the rocket too. It's not really a virtual currency at all. It's virtual gold, a vehicle for speculative investment made possible by some interesting technological innovations. It's the absurd apotheosis of our financialized economy, an asset unmoored from any productive purpose. In the beginning were bonds, then synthetic bonds, and then Bitcoin. Jesus. The popularity of Bitcoin and its hundreds of imitators is also a product of understandable confusion and uncertainties. In this era of technological disruption, it's hard to tell which parts of human life might be improved by the internet, and those who didn't foresee the rise of, say, Amazon, should be hesitant to write off the future of Bitcoin. Okay, so his editor actually let that go to print. That garbled word salad of meaningless horseshit. Anyway, he continues. But it's worth being clear about what Bitcoin is right now. The supply of Bitcoin is capped by design, which is meant to prevent inflation. That doesn't mean the value of Bitcoin is stable. Sometimes it goes up, which is a nice benefit, not generally available with traditional currencies. On the other hand, sometimes the value goes down just as fast as a bout of hyperinflation. El Salvador, which is requiring businesses to accept Bitcoin, has promised to make it possible to rapidly convert it into real money. That's not exactly the hallmark of a useful currency. Okay, again, I've said this before. President Bukele has made it clear that he is not mandating that all businesses accept Bitcoin. Okay, so that's a fallacy right there. The rigidity of Bitcoin's design also makes it dangerously impractical as a replacement for national currencies. It is part of a long tradition of trying to prevent politicians from making bad economic policy decisions by preventing them from making any decisions. The gold standard is an older example of this disastrous concept. Okay, so... Uh, I'm, I'm, so which gold standard, first off, do you think Mr. Applebaum is referring to? 
And is he saying that pegging a currency to a store of value like gold is a disastrous concept? Well, we've had hundreds of years to argue for and against a gold standard, but one might argue that offering central banks the authority to print unlimited tonnages of fiat currency backed by nothing might be the real disastrous concept. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead because this is getting a bit boring. Uh, He goes on. Perhaps most important, Bitcoin is difficult and expensive to use as a currency. To the extent any people manage to use it, they mostly rely on a growing infrastructure that looks a lot like the traditional financial system. El Salvador hired a financial firm to create digital wallets for its citizens, which are basically what used to be called bank accounts. Okay, so again, he only tells you part of the story. So did you know that 70% of El Salvadorans are unbanked, okay? So if now they have a digital wallet on their phone that can store a currency, isn't that a good thing for the overall population? Shouldn't an ultra-liberal like Mr. Applebaum be pleased with this development? Well, apparently he isn't. Okay, he goes on. It's possible, but hardly evident, that this new infrastructure will improve upon the existing financial system, for example, by making it cheaper to move money across borders. But it hasn't happened yet. Okay, again, this is not true. It has happened. And given that about 20% of El Salvador's GDP is remittances, okay, that's money transferred into the country from expats and others abroad, this is a key point in this quote opinion piece that he manages to completely bungle. I talked about this a couple episodes ago, and by being able to avoid costly money transfer systems like Western Unions and bank-to-bank ACH transfers, using Bitcoin wallets on the Lightning Network enables essentially free transactions, and this fucking dummy doesn't even mention the fact, and he doesn't even mention the Lightning Network. He continues, For now, the people using Bitcoin are basically a bunch of cosplay libertarians participating in a game of make-believe on the playgrounds of the nanny state. So, fuck you, dude. Seriously, fuck you. Again, when ultra-progressive turds like this guy don't understand something, they have to make fun of it. Okay, it's as clear as day. This dude doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So what does he do? He makes fun of people who do understand it. And remember this quote from Arthur Schopenhauer? All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. And Binyamin Applebaum, along with the other Times writers, get little hard-ons ridiculing Bitcoin, a technology they clearly don't understand. He continues, most Bitcoin holders, of course, don't even see it as currency. They're in it to get rich, which is the one service that Bitcoin has managed to deliver. There are reasons to worry about this, too. Bitcoin mining is an environmental disaster requiring vast amounts of electricity, more than the nation of Finland. Speculative frenzies divert resources and attention from productive investments. And the bigger the bubble, the greater the damage when it pops. Okay, so once again, we default to the predictable and intellectually lazy 
environmental disaster argument. And of course, in that sentence, he links uh, to the Clickbait Times article from a couple of weeks ago, which I covered in detail in episode 38. So as long as we're going to make arguments about the environmental disaster that is Bitcoin, what do you think would be the environmental impact of trying to get the 70% of unbanked El Salvadorans onboarded into traditional brick and mortar banks? And again, the El Salvador Chivo wallet allows you to make payments and remittances over the Lightning Network, which is insanely energy efficient. And of course, in an opinion piece about Bitcoin in El Salvador, this asshole fails to mention the Lightning Network. And this one is the is great. Speculative frenzies divert resources and attention from productive investments. I would love to hear what this pansy considers productive investments. Okay, I swear we're almost done here. Uh, next up are the final two paragraphs. But until this month, I wasn't worried about Bitcoin. The current frenzy is sometimes compared with other famous bubbles, like the Dutch tulip craze of the 17th century. One key commonality is that both involve a relatively small group of investors with money to burn. Most Dutch didn't buy tulips, most Americans don't own Bitcoin. If politicians start taking Bitcoin seriously, however, that would be reason for greater concern. It is a pleasant illusion that the problems in the financial system can be solved by replacing it rather than doing the hard work of fixing it. That kind of escapism makes for entertaining chatter on the internet. National leaders really should know better. Okay, again, he uses the intellectually lazy apples to oranges tulip bubble as an analog for the current interest in Bitcoin. Okay, remember, the Dutch tulip bubble was over and done with in less than four years. We're over a decade into Bitcoin and its adoption and its value continue to grow. So I just wanted to share this piece with you and I'll put a link in the show notes. But just so that you can understand, there are people out there with what can used to be considered very credible news outlets spreading outright misinformation about cryptocurrency because they fear it and they don't understand it. And you can just picture some wussy-ass Massachusetts liberal sitting at his breakfast table with his button-down Argyle sweater, or better yet, a turtleneck, sipping a cup of Earl Grey, reading this, and getting upset and angry about the evils of Bitcoin, and then not having the curiosity or even the desire to actually do his own research. It's journalistic malpractice, even if it is in the opinion section. Okay, link in the show notes. Thanks for bearing with me on that. It just that kind of stuff really kind of gets me. So next up, your third quarterly estimated tax payment of the year was due on Wednesday the 15th. So if you're self-employed, you know the drill. Gotta pay your quarterlies. Uh, and I know for me, I'm pretty much always late on mine. I get the little payment coupons for the year uh, from my accountant when I file annually. And uh, so I've got mine right here at my desk, which means... No, I have not paid mine yet. So my accountant says, pay your quarterlies on time. She, she, I think she's pretty serious about it. But again, I'm always late. So I got to ask you, have you ever been penalized for paying your quarterlies late? I'm just curious because I don't know anyone who has. Um, send me an email at matt at Rogue Retirement Lounge if you've ever been slapped with either interest or a penalty as a direct result of a late quarterly. Okay, next up, the housing shortage. Okay, it's getting worse. And it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. So get this, approximately 12.3 million American households were formed from January 2012 to June 2021, but just 7 million 
new single-family homes were built during that time. So what does that mean? Okay, first of all, household formation happens when an individual moves out of a shared living situation. Now, clearly, there's more contraction in the aggregate as people kind of pair off. But either way, we're looking at a deficit of 5 million single-family homes in the last almost decade. And on top of that, right now, single-family home construction is running at its slowest pace since 1995, okay? Everyone's been talking about the issues slowing home building since the pandemic started. You know, the stratospheric uh, lumber price increases coupled with uh, building material shortages uh, and the labor issues. So I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I'm in a band. We play uh, Yacht Rock from the 70s uh, and drunken 50-year-olds love us. Um, last weekend, we had a gig at a yacht club, appropriately enough, and we killed it. Um, all of our other, other gigs are getting canceled because of covid but why am I telling you this? Well, the guy who runs our sound, Tony, is not only a kick-ass sound guy, but for his day job, he's a construction materials estimator for a building supply company here in Oregon. So every time I see him, I interrogate him on the state of the industry, lumber prices and whatnot. So Saturday night was no exception. I asked him what uh, contractors were having trouble getting. And while the prices of lumber continue to come down, there are some materials that you just can't get. For example, he said, um, hardy trim. Okay, so you've probably heard of hardy plank siding, but they also make trim. Um, you know, the little four-inch wide like cement board or press board lengths that go um, at all the joints and corners around any house um, and around windows and whatnot. Well, apparently that trim here in Oregon, at least, is getting close to impossible to find. And you can't finish a house without trim, so that's a problem. Anyway, uh, long story short, there continue to be building supply shortages, which is causing the already slow home starts coming on to come on even slower. And remember, the new houses that are getting built today are not starter homes. You can't make money building little three-bed, two-bath houses anymore. So all these housing starts that actually are coming online aren't going to really help the millions of new households who can't afford a big-ass McMansion in a higher-end development. So the pain basically continues. Uh, now, according to Realtor.com chief economist Daniel Hale, quote, the pandemic has certainly exacerbated the U.S. housing shortage, but data shows household formations outpaced new construction long before COVID. Put simply, new construction supply hasn't been meeting demand over the last five years. Millennials, many of whom are now in their 30s or and even 40s, have debunked the industry's renter generation expectations. So millennials aren't following the shitty advice of turds like James Altucher and Ramit Sethi, uh, who tell them that it's cheaper and financially preferable to rent instead of buying. Okay, and that's good for the millennials, but it's not helping our housing shortage. Um, Pulte Group, one of the nation's largest home builders, and whose name I probably just uh, mispronounced, just lowered its Q3 and full-year guidance for home closings, citing supply chain disruption. Quote, Despite the extraordinary efforts of our trade partners, the supply chain issues that have plagued the industry throughout the pandemic have increased during the second half of the year, Pulte CEO Ryan Marshall said in a release. We continue to work closely with our suppliers, but shortages for a variety of building, of building products combined with increased production volumes across the home building industry are directly impacting our ability to get homes closed to our level of quality over the remainder of 2021. So what does that mean for you? Well, if you own single family rentals pretty much anywhere in the country, if you've got a decent property manager, 
it'd probably be worth holding on to that place. I've been checking the Zillow uh, for my houses and every month they're ticking up. And even though I'm looking at a $4,000 bill to get my Detroit house back in shape from that shitbag renter who trashed the place, the value of that house is going up by that much every month or two. So I'm in it to win it. And look, if the new three point however many trillion dollar spending bill passes, we're talking about more money creation, more debt inflation, and higher asset prices. So sit back, make yourself a nice cocktail, and congratulate yourself for doing the right thing and riding out this wave. And if you haven't bought real estate as part of your retirement plan yet, you know, I, I, in my opinion, I don't think it's too late. There are still places like North Texas, the Dallas area where, you know, the outskirts, um, where you can find new build homes that are built to rent that'll cash flow right off the bat. Um, the deals aren't screaming kick ass deals like you could have found a couple of years ago, but it's not too late. There's also, um, deals all over Florida. Uh, there's a, a few still left in, uh, Ohio. Anyway, there are deals to be had. And I just, uh, again, I don't think it's too late. So finally today, um, this week, we lost a legend, one of my favorite comedians of all time, Norm MacDonald. That dude to me was, uh, I mean, he was he was absolutely hilarious. And I'm, I'm not going to pay tribute to him because you can find those all over the internet right now. Um, and I'd highly recommend looking for some of them because some of the some of his appearances on talk shows were just comedy gold. Anyway, rest in peace, Norm. That said, I'd like to pay tribute to someone who you won't hear about unless you subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. This is an obituary from the September 18th print edition. Cornell Meyer, who grew up poor in a small South Dakota town, survived 51 bombing missions in Europe during World War II as a navigator. GI Bill benefits helped him earn an electrical engineering degree at the University of California, Berkeley in 1949. Mr. Meyer joined Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Corp. based in Oakland, California, and stayed at the company for nearly 40 years, 15 of them as chief executive. He retired in the late 1980s amid a takeover battle that eventually transferred control of Kaiser Aluminum to Maxim, Inc. Then Mr. Meyer departed from the typical CEO script. Instead of adorning the boards of medical and cultural institutions, he devoted his retirement to hands-on volunteer work at a school for inner-city children and at a children's hospital. His donations were a lifeline for Northern Light School, serving preschool through eighth grade children in Oakland, where Mr. Meyer regularly stopped by to mentor and hug the children. At UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, he helped comfort babies in the neonatal intensive care unit two mornings a week for more than 25 years. Quote, I get so much more out of it than I give, he told the Oakland Tribune in 2009. When I'm holding a little baby up on my shoulder and her warm little cheek is pressing against mine, that's as close to heaven as you can get. Mr. Meyer died August 13th at his home in Oakland. He was 96. Quote, I didn't want to become a couch potato, he said, of his retirement plan, so he established a schedule that would require him to be out of his home by 7 a.m. each weekday morning. As a donor with strong business credentials, he was invited to join the board of the Oakland Children's Hospital. Mr. Meyer declined that offer and said he preferred to help take care of infants in intensive care. Trained volunteers in such units rock babies and provide reassuring human contact when the parents are absent. Mr. Meyer also regularly bought toys and supplies for children in the hospital. 
Cornell was everybody's friend, said Bette Flushman, an infant development specialist at the Oakland Hospital. Born January 12, 1925, he grew up partly in Harried, South Dakota, whose population was around 300 in the 1930s. His father abandoned the family shortly before Cornell Meyer's birth. His mother worked in a general store. One of young Cornell's first jobs was cleaning spittoons in a bar. He recalled that his grandparents helped feed hobos passing through town during the Depression, and his mother sewed quilts for the poor. That made a big impression on me, Mr. Meyer said. With his sister and mother, Cornell Meyer moved to Los Angeles at about 17 and finished high school there before volunteering for the Army Air Forces during World War II. His B-24 bomber crews flew out of southern Italy on bombing missions over Germany. After missions, crew members were offered a shot of whiskey to calm their nerves. Mr. Meyer recalled accepting it only once after barely making it back to the home base. We'd been shot up pretty badly, he said, and fuel was running out. After the war, he studied business along with his electrical engineering courses at Berkeley. Kaiser Aluminum, founded by Henry J. Kaiser, an industrialist who also helped create the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare Organization, offered Mr. Meyer a job after he graduated. Early on, he had clerical and sales jobs. He rose swiftly in management and regularly accepted transfers to distant places, including England and Germany, where he studied German so he could address workers in their own language. Part of his success, he said in a 1982 interview with UPI, may have been that he remained single. The bachelor has a lot more control over his time, he said, and can work long hours without that guilty feeling that he just might be neglecting his family. He became CEO in 1972 and added the title of chairman in 1978, succeeding Edgar Kaiser, son of the founder. The company had programs to improve schools and parks. Executive performance reviews included ratings for community involvement. In 1980, Mr. Meyer helped arrange a sale of the athletics baseball team that kept the franchise in Oakland. Kaiser Aluminum suffered losses in the 1980s amid weak demand for aluminum and high power costs. The company closed plants and cut costs, including Mr. Meyer's salary. When an Oklahoma investor, J.A. Freights, made a hostile takeover bid in 1985, Mr. Meyer erected the usual defenses. I happen to like a good dog fight, he, he told the Wall Street Journal. I just wish we were fighting over something constructive. It would be more fun. The battle dragged on until October 1988, when shareholders of the aluminum company's parent approved a bid from Maxim, controlled by Houston financier Charles Hurwitz. Mr. Meyer at the time lived in an Oakland home he called La Mancha, honoring one of his favorite characters, Don Quixote. The decor included antique carousel horses and a slot machine. He is survived by a niece and two nephews, among other relatives. He treasured his volunteer work with babies and schoolchildren. I just think the good Lord said, you'll not have a wife, Cornell, but I'll let you have a lot of children, he said. In his 2009 interview with the Oakland Tribune, he said, I believe that every able-bodied person, starting at 18, has a responsibility to give of their time, talent, or financial resources to help others. I don't make exceptions for the Queen of England or the President of the United States. And with that, I'm going to call it a day. I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. 
Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.